Welcome to the next track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams, and I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit Patreon.com/slash/TheNextTrack and thanks. So some of our episode ideas come from random discussions. We usually get together once a week and have tea or the people who are wrong, they have coffee and chat for a while about whatever. And we talk about music and other things. And some time ago, a month or so ago, we started talking about album covers and the importance of album covers and how album covers are seen and, and what the semiotic value of an album cover is in the sense that the, the album cover is a signifier that signifies what music is inside of it. In addition to being potentially a piece of art on its own, it is forever married with the music for someone who buys that album. Before we get into all the analysis, I think this is something that should be brought up. We're talking about something in an audio context that is a visual thing. <laughs> so... One of the things that we've been talking about for years is, is we got to talk about album covers somehow, but how do we do it? And you do a photography podcast and you talk about pictures. So however you do that, that's how we'll be handling the uh, the album cover art. Right. So I'm going to do two things. I'm not going to put the albums we discuss in the show notes for technical reasons. I'm going to put them on my website and link from the show notes to my website but what I'm also going to try and do is put the album covers in the podcast as artwork at different points. In other words, when we start talking about album X, at that point, it's going to change to that album. So depending on your podcast app, you'll be able to look at it and see what album we're talking about. I know that Overcast does this. I'm not sure if Apple Podcasts does. More and more apps are doing this where you can put images at different points into a podcast. I will also insert occasional cat photos just to let people know in case they're looking or not looking that cat photos are the reason the internet was created. I like that. That's a good idea. That's keeping with I tradition. I will put photos of my cats. Yeah. In fact, if Doug wants to give me some photos of his, sure. I'll include them as well. But, you know, there will be cat photos. Anyway, so here we are. We're going to talk about some album covers. And I, the other thing we that tricked this off was we were looking at lists of what were some of the lists like? These are the great world's greatest album covers or something like that? Yeah, the 100 best album covers. <laughs> Which is kind of a dumb idea to begin with, I think. Well, A lot of people will like an album cover because they like the, the music that's on the album. And that, I guess I guess that's arguable. I mean, if someone said they liked the Thriller album cover, it could only be because they like Thriller. There's nothing particularly interesting about the Thriller album cover. Right. So what we wanted to talk about is iconic album covers. And for me, what that means is that it's an image that has escaped from the limited area of music. In other words, I'm going to start with just one really classic example that I think everyone knows. It's the Beatles Abbey Road album. So that image has gotten to such a point where you get people going to visit the Abbey Road studio and taking pictures of themselves as they cross the crosswalk. In other words, the iconicity of the album has gotten to a point where people who don't even know the music or aren't fans will be able to recognize that image on its own and maybe not necessarily equate it with the album. 
That's、um, one of two Beatles albums. Wouldn't you agree that are iconic? Well, you know, before we started recording, I said there were two, but actually there's three. So, what's your second one? Well, my second one would be Sgt. Pepper because of the collage of celebrities. It was parodied by Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention. Not even a year and a half later. I mean, that's how quickly that entered the zeitgeist. So that's easily the second one. The third one, hmm, it, it's the one that isn't the White Album. Yeah, that's interesting that you say the White Album because I have a pick later. Okay, kind of- well, for me, the White Album is iconic because everyone, everyone, because everyone who knows. The Beatles knows the story of that. That it was a photo of John and Yoko naked, and that the record company couldn't do it. So it's essentially a statement about censorship. And it's not that you couldn't have other naked women on albums. That Blind Faith record, right? Right, with someone who definitely looks underage, absolutely, or not entirely naked, but the best of the new writers of the Purple Sage, Roxy Music, Roxy Music, sure. Well, but they had underwear on, didn't they? Yes, but. It was the it wasn't the、totally、same、naked. intention, right? But the intention was to to get past the、uh, well. I guess that's all right. We'll let that one slide. Yeah, sort of censorship. <laughs> but but an album being iconic has to be something where you can actually see that image reproduced elsewhere, and you say, "Oh yes, I recognize that because." And so we've each made lists, and I've got a list of about twenty. I'm not going to talk about all of them. The first one I put is what to me is very iconic, and I think this is a generational thing. I've seen this reproduced more and more lately, and I wonder if it's going to take on this iconic nature for more people. It's the first Joy Division album, "Unknown Pleasures," with that little sort of 3D mountain type graph, which. I can't remember exactly where the designer Peter Saville found it, but he flipped open some book about electronics or something, and he saw that and he said that would be perfect. It makes a great T-shirt. It makes a great T-shirt. It makes a great tattoo. I saw a while ago. Was it? Was it not long ago when it was the 40th anniversary? I saw a bunch of tattoos and posters. It's the kind of thing that you could see. You know, I'm almost thinking that you know how we can have songs in commercials. I'm almost wondering if somehow some of these images from albums are going to get co-opted for print ads or or digital ads at some point. I I wouldn't be surprised if they have been. I mean, we've already talked about the Beatles albums. There certainly have been parodies of the Abbey Road, and as I mentioned, the Frank Zappa parody of the、uh, Sgt. Pepper albums. I mean, if we thought long and hard, I'm sure we could think of commercials, print ads, things like that that parodied. Uh, famous album covers. I can't think of any off the top of my head, but and I would think parody is the sign of something taking on that iconic value. Now, Zappa doing that a year and a half after—that's not really iconic at that point. Although I guess that album was so big that you couldn't not do it. What was the Rolling Stones album that was kind of influenced by that? Satanic Majesty's Request. Right. So it was similar. It had the same concept. That was the one that was in that sort of faux 3D, right? Yeah, it had a、uh, special What's it called, a lenticular thing. Yeah, it, if you change the angle of the thing, the, it's sort of like a prismatic、yeah. plastic thing. Yeah, the original album does. I don't think they. <laughs> I don't think they duplicated. No, I don't. I don't think they did. No, one that I find iconic and. See, there's a difference between some of the ones we're going to talk about later that are, that everyone would recognize. This is someone that people of a certain generation would recognize. It's the cover of the Free Will and Bob Dylan, where Dylan and Susie Rotolo are walking down a street in the village. It's the kind of photo that I've seen reproduced by people 
on the same street, that kind of thing. Similar to the Abbey's Road, where people are crossing the street and they try and get in the same, you know, with their four feet all in the same position synchronistically, synchronously, like they were doing synchronized walking or some sort of Monty Python skit. Uh, arguably, Dylan's covers, uh, if you're a Dylan fan, Blonde on Blonde is a really interesting portrait, but his covers aren't iconic like his music is. This, this is probably the only one, I think, that does go a little bit beyond. Yeah, but not by much. You're right that they are kind of, I mean, Blonde on Blonde is a great one. Highway 61 Revisited. That's an intro. I love that cover too. I wouldn't say it's iconic, but it's fun to look at. Actually, some of the records that I pulled were, are just fun to look at, if I may. <clears throat> when I was like 11 years old, a friend of ours came to stay with us over Christmas and he brought his record collection with him. And he was 18 years old and he had virtually every great record up until that time, 1970. And one of the albums he had that I could not keep my eyeballs off of was the Jefferson Airplane album, Volunteers. And I've, I am, I, to this day, uh, I'm still very attracted to that album cover. It's the one that has Volunteers on it. It has We Can Be Together on it. It has Good Shepherd on it. Um, it's a good album, but I could not take my eyes on What kind of music does this band play? Because <laughs> I was unfamiliar with it when I saw the album cover. I had heard of Jefferson Airplane, and I'm almost certain... This must have been after Woodstock or certainly around the time of Woodstock, but I wasn't really sure what kind of music Jefferson Airplane played. But I was very intrigued by this album. Now, on the cover, it's a black and white photo of the band sitting on a bench, uh, and they're all wearing different kinds of masks and different disguises. And the highlight is one of them is standing there with a lampshade, a fringed lampshade on his head, saluting. And so you don't really know who they are, but they are apparently the volunteers of America. That's what I always thought that went along with the song. The other interesting thing I thought about, I think about this album cover is if you know Jefferson Airplane's Surrealistic Pillow album, it's also a shot of six people on the cover um, with a with a red sort of motif, a pink motif. And they're all, it's almost like a parody of a, of a folk album, really, because they're all holding, a, there's a banjo on that album and a, someone's holding a flute and a violin, I think. And then you go to Right to Volunteers, which also has this red, pink, black and white uh, thing going on. And it's much more, uh, how do I, aggressive? The, the album is much more aggressive. And with that, that big block letter, Volunteers, uh, it just, I just, it, it's always intrigued me. And I've, I've, it made me enjoy Jefferson Airplane more. You, we were talking earlier about how, how the artwork is an extension of the music, and it's, it really seems like, for me, Volunteers really helped define uh, the music on the album. What I like about that cover is it kind of looks like a newspaper with that big display font on the top, and it's got On the, the other side of the, of the album, okay. it's a newspaper, not unlike uh, the, the Jethro Tull album, right. uh, Thick as a Brick. The, the American flag is very important because, first of all, the song is Volunteers of America, and this is the time when people were anti-war and being told they were anti-American. So this was a statement for them to say, we've got the flag behind us, just like the John Birch Society. Yes, and I think that's what they were parodying. I want to go back to the oldest album on my list, which I think is iconic for a number of ways. And again, this isn't the kind of image like, we're going to talk later about Pink Floyd and Dark Side of the Moon. That's an image that everyone knows. But this is like the image of Miles Davis that just kind of burned into everyone's head, the, the cover of Kind of Blue. In part because if you only own one jazz album, you own Kind of Blue. 
I'll link to our episode where we discuss Kind of Blue. What I find really interesting about this, however, is there was a re-release of Kind of Blue in, what is this, Columbia Jazz Masterpieces series, digitally remastered from the original analog tapes. So what they did is they didn't use the same cover. They used the cover of Miles in the 80s in a gold lame jacket with holding a mute, yet playing with his left hand. Miles was right-handed, so they took the photo and they flipped it around. Like, why would you take Kind of Blue in some classic legacy edition and have a photo that has nothing to do with that period of time? It's a lovely portrait. The the chiaroscuro on his face, the tight crop of him where you don't even see the bell of the trumpet, it's really a beautiful image. And and I think anyone who's into jazz would recognize that image or a parody of that image if someone else, a trumpeter, made an album and shot themselves in the same position, anyone would recognize it. Yes, you would have to be in the right position, which I I don't want to not spend time on this, but this reminds me, uh, uh, doing a, a cover of this reminds me of the Elvis Presley record that everybody has copied. And that's the one that everybody probably knows as London Calling by The Clash, but it's been done by other people. Uh, Katie Lang did a version of it called, I think it's called Reincarnation, And she has the exact same thing as the Elvis. And it, it, that's a kind of a funny echo. Um, I don't know of anybody who's done a Miles Davis cover, but I think you're right. If you were in the right place, in the right position like the Elvis Presley record, you could get away with it. Although there's, there are more distinguishing marks in the Elvis cover than there are on the Miles Davis one. They're a little more subtle. Well, the specific fonts and, and the colors of the fonts are really different. But the, the Miles Davis just, it kind of, it just says jazz, right? You see that, you know what it's about, you know when it's from, you know the period. It, it's a it's a black and white photo, and it's like it's from the 50s, so you know immediately what's going on. Here's one that features a, a person, and is it iconic? I don't know. It's one of these things that, that for people in the 70s it is. It's, I'm going to do the gesture here, and you're going to figure out what it is. Uh, heroes. <laughs> David Bowie heroes, yeah. Actually, the angle wasn't good. You got to get it. I'm trying to get the camera angle here. So he's got his hands in this weird position. And a couple of weeks ago, you, you th- told me that you had been told that it was like sign language for something, some kind of sign language for sick or depressed. And right. I've been I've been walking around telling people that, you know. And I, I guess I've been misinformed. It was just probably one of those things that a Bowie fan came up with, and that's what happened. But anyway, I don't know what it. I don't know that it means anything. In fact, I saw coincidentally the proof sheet from the photo sessions that this was taken in. And shortly before or after this, he was also running that hand into his hair. So it's almost like he just accidentally just has his hands there because he was doing other movements with his hair and his hands and his eyes and his stare. So uh, sick or depressed, maybe. Um, it, it certainly made sense to me because the album is, is somewhat uh, somber. And, uh, you know, it's a tough period for him and a creative period, uh, despite his despondence and all of that stuff that was going on in Berlin. So, Well, according to something I found, the cover is partly inspired by a work called Roque Roll, Roque Roll by Eric Heckel, uh, painted in 1917, which was a painting that Bowie owned. So I'll put a link in the show notes to an article that compares the painting and the photo. It's very, very different. It's a different gesture. But if this is what Bowie says, then that's what it is. Bowie says it must be. But, you know, he's 
Uh, I don't want to go. This is a tangent, but he can say one thing one week and the next week he says something. Exactly. Okay. Do you remember the cover for Iggy Pop's The Idiot? It's it's also inspired by the same painting, oh. according to the article I found. Yeah. It's, but see, now we've gone from iconic to classic, right? Yeah, I suppose so. And, yeah. And what I want to talk about was iconic. So I mentioned Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. That's, you know, it is, everyone recognizes it. I think it's a pretty boring cover. For me, it's a lot less interesting than the animals cover, which to— well, it's, it's a lot less—wait a minute. It's it's the least interesting cover of any of their albums. I mean, I looked—I used to spend hours looking at Uma Guma because of the the, the way the, the uh, pictures were hung yeah. and the different positions. I mean, every, the back cover of Uma Guma where they laid out all the instruments and— yeah. You know, every other album was fun to look at. This is like, what the heck is this? Yet, it's definitely an image that I've seen on posters, just no as the image and T-shirts, etc. Sure. We mentioned The Clash. I, I wonder how iconic the first Clash album cover is, because that's like, that's pure punk imagery, right? So here's yes. the one with the... Yeah. the th- you talk about the one with the three of them. With, with the three of them in black and white. What it looks like to me is the kind of image you'd get in a fanzine, right? Re- really low quality Xerox type, not quite straight, torn around the edges. Or a bill of uh, performance or like a card you would hand out to your friends saying, "Our ba- this band is going to be playing at the local club. It looks It just looks like anything you'd see in a newspaper or... You know, the kidnapped uh, sort of uh, DIY look. So another punk album is obviously the Sex Pistols. Never mind the bollocks, here's the Sex Pistols. Well, there's the kidnap one. Right, the kidnap one, which is also so iconic that I have a T-shirt on today, which is No Music on a Dead Planet. It's being sold by a a group, an environmental group, and they have a number of different T-shirts by designers in the same design as their albums that are well-known. I see. So this is iconic enough to someone who knows the album that they'll recognize it. But then again, you know, the colors on that album, the kind of the contrast between the, the kidnap note and the bright colors is always kind of surprising because it, it looks kind of cheap. I mean, cheap in the sense of... It's cheap aggression, though. That's exactly what the punks were. It was DIY. No, it's but simple. It's not, no, it's, I, uh, you take these two no, uh, opposing colors and... And yeah, it's it's the pink and the yellow that are just, you know, yeah. that don't really oppose very well. You know, red no. and green are kind of the opposite on the color wheel, but pink and yellow. Yeah. Okay, so here's the one classic, iconic album. You know the Grateful Dead Steely, right? The Grateful Dead symbol with the, the skull, with the white and the blue and the lightning bolt. Do you know which album it comes from? Do you know what album that um, even... Does anyone know that album? Uh, so... Steal Your Face is the name of the album, and it was recorded at the Grateful Dead's pre-hiatus run at Winterland in October 1974. They had used this iconography as stickers and things before that. It was originally, apparently it was originally designed by Owsley Stanley, who was their sound guy, to mark their equipment cases. So they'd have these stickers on all their, you know, amps and their cases and everything, so they'd know whose was whose. And they decided to put it onto this album. It's probably the worst Grateful Dead album ever, in the sense that, no, 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 the, the problem is that it was not very well... It was poorly mixed. There was a lot of overdubbing. When they worked on the Grateful Dead movie, they also cleaned up the soundtrack, and they came up with an extraordinary set that is sold as the Grateful Dead movie soundtrack, a five-CD set. But this one, it's just not good. It's just—it wasn't real. 
But yet, but the iconic, the iconography took off. The iconography is, you know, this is the, this is the symbol of the Grateful Dead. And I think people who aren't deadheads would recognize this. You know, the iconography made me think and of, of something I just wrote down. And I didn't know if we were even going to talk about it, but virtually every Chicago album has that same icon. It's on my list. It, it, that's their, that's their branding. Yeah. I mean, even on the first album, Chicago Transit Authority, it's spelled that that curly QC and everything. I don't know how to call it. What do you want to call it? But then when they became just Chicago, they kept that same uh, uh, font for, for, I don't know, all 10 albums, 11 albums. I don't know how long they used it. If they, or, but it's their logo. It's their icon. It's been on every single recording. Oh, it has. Okay. I, I'm pretty sure. I'm just looking this up while we talk because what's better than live radio when someone's looking something up? But of course, I'd have to find... I have to click through each one. Well, they use the same font afterwards, and what they're doing is they're having different backgrounds each time. Yeah. Or in um, the case of the Carnegie Hall album, it's a very elegant, just a cream-colored, uh, raised font, which is yeah. kind of nice. In some ways, that's no different than Yes's logo for their name. Right, right. And then a lot of people started doing it later. Lots of bands have logos now for their, you know, they use the same iconography all the time yeah even the rolling stones came up with the lapping tongue they may not have uh you know the same font all the time but uh, they've got symbols and brands and it's kind of interesting i always i thought chicago was one of the first to actually do it in such a way that it really made a statement this is us and there's no mistaking what the sound is going to be inside it's chicago when when I think about like all the Grateful Dead T-shirts I've bought because they've always had really good iconography and artists and all that, and then I think about one of my other favorite artists, Bob Dylan. I've only got one or two because he just never ever. I don't think he cared about it. He could have gotten great artists to you know, like the Rolling Stones had very unique covers on different things. He could have built up something, but he didn't. He never did. Go to the Grateful Dead website. There's always tons of great t-shirts. There's like a, a dozen different images that they keep reproducing in different ways. But there are other bands that just don't do that. Yes was kind of interesting. I, I wouldn't say that any of their album covers were iconic, although the Roger Dean covers did set a sort of an image for the 1970s prog rock type stuff. And any album you would see with a Roger Dean cover would make you think of that type of music. But they were all different. I mean, they did have their logo-fied Yes logo from about 72 on, because the first couple albums didn't have that. But that Roger Dean style did create an image. I want to jump ahead because one of the most iconic album covers of the late 1970s is not so much iconic because of the album, but because of the movie for which it was a soundtrack. Do you want to take three guesses on this one? No, I can't think of it. Huge best-selling album. Well, come on. Saturday Night Fever. Oh, of course. And that album cover with the Bee Gees in the back and John Travolta with his, you know, hand up at Statue of Liberty kind of thing in the front on the dance floor, that just says exactly what's in the album— Remember, it's a double album. It's rare for a soundtrack to be a double album. It's the image from the movie poster is him in that same position. Uh, that was like the image of disco music. Also, that they're all dressed in white, both John Travolta and the three B's and G's. They've got the same sort of, obviously, the same logo styling for the title, since it was a movie. Uh, that was incredibly iconic 
as th- it's like the Ur Disco album, even though it's not the first. Well, it's it's a disco album that a lot of people own because of the variety, because of the various artists and stuff like that. But yeah, it's very familiar. It's it's a tattoo. <laughs> you could easily get that as a tattoo. Yeah. Well, complicated <laughs> yeah. tattoo. Complicated tattoo. Let's see. I've only got a couple more that were getting less iconic, but the King Crimson's and the Court well, of the Crimson King is one of the great sure. album covers on your list, too. It was going to be, but I didn't put it on because I knew you'd have it, so I didn't. One of the ones that I, <laughs> one of the ones that I have on is you mentioned the White Album, and I know you're not familiar with this album, but it was pretty important when it came on. That's ACDC's Back in Black, and that is a completely black album. Except for the back, which has uh, the listing of the songs in white. But the lettering on the front is just raised ACDC back in black. And the reason that's important is because, first of all, when this album came out, there weren't any CDs. So the way you promoted your album was by having a distinct album. I mean, that was really important at the time. The reason this is a back in black is because their original lead singer, Bon Scott, had died. This is their first album with their new lead singer. So they're sort of making it a funereal sort of a look. And of course, some, there are several of the songs on the album have that funeral, Hell's Bells and, and uh, Back in Black and, and whatever else. But of course, it also has their highest charting song on it, You Shook Me All Night Long. So it's a, it's a very well-known album, for, but it's completely blank when you look at it. So it's, a, it's an interesting thing. And it has nothing to do with censorship, which I thought was weird. So Bon Scott died and they replaced him with Bon Jovi? Yeah. <laughs> no, they replaced him with Brian Johnson. So I think iconic albums disappeared once the CD came around or once vinyl died, because when it's smaller, it doesn't have the same power of imagery. The only one that I have, and I guess this was probably, I don't know even when this came out. This is probably a record that came out on CD, but was also out on vinyl because they were still doing vinyl in the early 90s. Nirvana's Nevermind. And this is an image that I've seen parodies of in many ways. I don't know the music. It's not my type of music, but it's certainly an image that is not uncommon, I think. it's a, I never understood why why this was on the cover. I don't, I'm not really sure. Sh- I, I know the album pretty well. We played a lot of the music on the radio, and you know, it's, a, it's an iconic alt record. And I still don't understand why. <laughs> I mean, it's a clever photo. Oh, baby in the pool, swimming for a dollar. I get it. But uh, you know, but I don't know what it has to do with Nirvana. Maybe some you know, maybe I'll ever read about it and find out. But I just I, it just seems like a non sequitur uh, for an album cover. It just seems like a clever idea for a cover. But I could be wrong. I don't. Maybe I don't understand the music either. Again, I think we've passed the stage of iconic albums because we just don't have. We they're just too small. Well, not only are they too small on CDs. Now it's all digital, and I, I can't see an image taking off in the same way on digital as it did in physical. Let me tell you something about how hard, how hard it was to research this episode. Try to find life size, full size pictures of album covers on the internet. I mean, you can get them pretty big, but it's really hard to find them at, at thirteen and get them to look like thirteen inches by thirteen inches on your computer. They just they just aren't out there. They're all six hundred by six hundred, or at best maybe a thousand by a thousand. The largest standard size I see is fourteen hundred, and even then, that's yeah. not. Oh, you could print that in twelve inches, D- depending on what it is. It, it wouldn't print it. Yeah, <laughs> make a physical copy of it. <laughs> yeah, but but see, the point is that now that we don't have them, that we're holding in our hands and we're passing around when a bunch of friends are listening. There's not even going to be any reason for these things. To, 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 the, the artwork for artists is not going to become 
their imagery for t-shirts and and other things and so like taylor swift released a new album recently and it's like the album cover she sells on you know t-shirts and a whole bunch of things but it's not like this is just for marketing it's not an imagery that's going to last it's a one-off it's not going to become the kind of thing that people are going to eventually put on a wall someplace because it is a piece of art in some ways right i i i it's all branding now and then and maybe that's a good thing because it <sighs> Well, maybe it's a good thing. I don't know. No, I don't think so. I like the originality of album artwork that did give a character to the music. Absolutely, um, but I don't think they're, we're never going to see it big the way we saw it on LPs, unless you buy the LP. Yeah, and even it's then, just, so so few people buy the LPs that, you know. Well, then they don't do the community thing where they pass the record around or roll, right. their, roll their blunts on it or whatever. That, you right. know, it's just they won't have that experience. Now I'm going to cry. Now you made me cry. Oh, I'm sorry. How about we do our next tracks? I will if you will. Nothing to do with what we've talked about, with anything about what we've talked about. I enjoy jazz. I don't know much about jazz. There's a handful of jazz artists that I pay attention to. And on Apple Music, after you listen to a few, you get recommendations and new releases. Lately, there have been a lot of new releases by Art Pepper, saxophonist. He died in 1981, I think, and the latest releases... Art Pepper's widow, who's been overseeing all these releases, and, and this is just called Atlanta. Apparently, it is at an unspecified jazz club in Atlanta, Georgia, during the spring of 1980. I don't know a lot of his music. I don't know a lot of his style. I, I'm not sure if this is like post-bop West Coast jazz or whatever. If you really are into jazz and I said something wrong there, please don't attack me. I just know that I like it. And this particular one, man, there is such energy. You can dance to this one. It is really good. It's a, it, it's, I think it's a, the equivalent of a two CD set. It's quite long. There's a bit of talking where he's introducing the musicians and talking about a couple of things. But man, this rocks. This is one of the, the coolest jazz records I've heard in a long time. So unreleased Art Pepper, Volume 11, Atlanta. What about you, Doug? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned West Coast jazz because I've got the man, or one of the mans, uh, Mel Torme, uh, his album from 1956 called Mel Torme and the Marty Page Dectet, which is about a 12-piece jazz orchestra, more or less. I grew up in a trad jazz house. We didn't listen to a lot of modern jazz. We might have had like one Miles Davis album, but we had a lot of, uh, a lot of Mel Torme. Uh, my mother was really into this 50s period of his where he took standards and kind of bopped them up. And, you know, I don't know if you knew this, but Mel Torme was not only just a great singer, you know, known as the Velvet Fog, but he was also a composer and also an arranger. And actually, he got a lot of business doing arranging. And uh, one of his deals was, if you let me arrange the band, because he was really hot, I'll do some vocals, too. Eventually, in the mid-50s, he was one of the pioneers of this West Coast cool swing hepcat sort of stuff. And it's kind of funny because... Um, he's had a lot of careers, if you think about it. I mean, in the 40s and the 50s, he was a he was like a Bobby Soxer idol, and then uh, he became this arranger and great jazz vocalist in the 50s. In the 60s, he was uh, recording a lot of standards in a in a very standard way, and then in the 70s, his his career had a big comeback because he was it was a nostalgic sort of thing, and then in the 90s, he had another career boost when. Uh, I don't know, you probably had some Ultra Lounge or Bachelor Pad CDs, which sort of had these uh, these cool sort of songs from the 50s and 60s that seemed kind of uh, facetious, but were actually quite good. Now, this album, Mel Torme and the Marty Page Dectet, is really something. It's got uh, 12 songs, 
really nicely arranged, real snappy, real uh, real boppy, uh, fun to listen to. His Lulu's Back in Town, which kicks off the album, is just a superb arrangement. And there's also a, a really fine arrangement of Lullaby of Birdland and The Lady is a Tramp. Just some really good stuff on here. If you are not a fan of this kind of vocal music, this is an easy place to start. Mel Torme and the Marty Page Dectet is my next track. This was episode number 205 of The Next Track. Thanks for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, at NextTrackCast. And don't forget you can support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We're ad-free and self-sustaining, so your support is what keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>